Good morning, everyone. I love Sundays like this where we have uh, special things like family dedications because it brings in new family and friends. And so I, if you're a visitor, if you're a family of those who uh, are celebrating that special event, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here. Um, I hope that you feel loved and not just by the people in this room. Most importantly, I hope you feel loved by the Savior who came to forgive you and set you free. And I hope that is very, very real to you this morning, as I do for all of us. So, I want to tell you about a book I read not too long ago entitled uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. One of the best books I've read in a really long time. And not because it gave all the reasons for why we suffer in life, nor did it give you a step-by-step guide and, and how to avoid it. Instead, he just tries to help us see how God is at work in the midst of our suffering. I believe, as we look at our passage this morning, you're going to see Peter do the very same thing. And I believe because of that, it's a message that we all need to hear. Because suffering is simply not something that any person in this room can avoid. The challenge is our ability to see God's purpose in the midst of our pain. Because most of the time, if we're honest, and I know this is absolutely true for me, I do everything I can to avoid discomfort, right? I am not a fan of suffering. And yet, very often, if I'm honest with myself again, I know for certainty, with certainty, that in the midst of suffering is when God does some of his most transformative work in my life. It reminds me of a story of one of my seminary professors who was out hiking with his daughter just enjoying nature one day, and they came upon a sight that people really rarely see. It, it was a butterfly as it was just emerging from its cocoon. And the daughter, though, was concerned because what she noticed was the butterfly had one wing extending out of the cocoon, but inside that cocoon it was just writhing and struggling and and, and contorting, and she was worried that it wasn't going to be able to make it. So my professor said that in an effort to help the situation, he very gently opened the little place where that butterfly could come out, only to see it fall out of the cocoon onto the ground and quickly die. And he realized later, as he thought about that, that that, that butterfly needed the struggle of emergence in order to survive and ultimately come alive. And I believe the very same thing is true for us because we think in our minds that life would be better without all the pain and suffering. And yet, the pain and suffering is where we learn the true meaning and purpose in life. Like that butterfly, we must struggle in order for our faith to come alive. So Peter's going to help us this morning. He's going to help us see how God will often use trials to refine and strengthen our faith. That that he will use suffering to to draw us more intimately into a relationship with him. That that he will use our pain to, to point us to something yet future. To enhance our hope. Because from God's point of view, and don't 
Don't forget this. As we walk through this passage this morning, I want you to really embrace this truth that God never wastes our suffering. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word, we will now look into a reality that is true for every single person in this room. We have, we are, we will experience suffering in this life. And Lord, if there are people like me in this room, we don't often do well in the midst of it. So I just pray, Lord, that you might use the the truth of your word to speak into our hearts in ways that ground us, that we would, as we sang this morning, find you to be that anchor of hope in the midst of our sorrow, of our struggle, of our pain. That we have a conviction deep within our souls that believes with all our heart that you will hold us fast. So Lord, as you inspired these words to be written in your scripture, would you then now, by the work of your spirit, penetrate our hearts and allow this truth to come alive. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'd love for you to read with me. The words will be up on the screen, but if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that thing up and let's look at it together. And I'll read beginning in verse 6. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get started, it's really important for us to keep a connection with what we talked about last week. Because Peter actually begins this in verse 6 by saying, In this you greatly rejoice. And the this is pointing us back to what we walked through last week in verses 1 through 5. Remember, as he reminds his audience that even though they were being rejected and persecuted by society, they had been chosen by God, persistently pursued by his fatherly affection, that God had transformed their life through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that he had forgiven their sins through Jesus' work on the cross. He says, in this, in that redemptive work, You should rejoice greatly, knowing that you have a living hope, that you have an imperishable inheritance, even though, as he goes on to say in verse 6, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And I think it's really interesting how the Holy Spirit inspired these words spoken to Peter that we read together this morning. Because Peter points them back to the importance of rejoicing in God's redemptive work. But he also recognizes the reality of their suffering. He doesn't say rejoice because your trials in the grand scheme of things are really not that big of a deal. That's not what he says. They were a big deal. And the grief that they were experiencing was real. But Peter wants them to know, number one, it won't last forever. He says, if for a little while. 
And then he goes on to say, and it's not without purpose. He says these trials were allowed if necessary. And then in verse 7, he begins to reveal how God is at work in the midst of their pain. And he does this by making a comparison with a familiar process of purifying gold. Because in its natural state, as, as you mine that from the earth, gold is filled with flaws and imperfections. It has defects that discolor uh, the, the gold. It diminishes its beauty. It has, has blemishes that makes it brittle and, and weak. So these impurities have to be removed, and that's done by, by placing it inside of a, a furnace where the fire can burn away these blemishes, and it, and it leaves the true beauty and strength of pure gold. And Peter uses that very same principle, and he says that it's true when it comes to our faith. Because the fire of trials that all of us experience in our life can be used by God to burn away the impurities, if you will, of our pride and our self-sufficiency. Suffering is what exposes the true beauty and strength of genuine faith. Now, I want to pause here because if you're like me, you might not feel like your faith is very pretty, especially in the midst of trials and suffering. I know as I worked through this passage, that was a thought that immediately came to me. I don't think it looks very pretty, especially when I compare myself to people like Yvonne Courtney or even my own brother who, as I observed their life, their faith seemed to get stronger when life got harder. But let me remind all of us, including me, that our faith is not measured by how tall we stand during the trials we face. Our faith is most evident when we fall on our knees. It's not the person who says, look at me, I've got this. It's the one who believes He's got me. You see, genuine faith looks to God for a strength that we do not possess on our own. It's trusting in Him instead of relying on our own wisdom and understanding because for many of us, in most of the suffering that we endure, there's often no good explanation. There's no satisfying answer. And even though we may doubt the strength of our future faith in things that we might experience somewhere down the road, we can take confidence based on what we read in Scripture like passages this morning that God is at work right now equipping us for what lies ahead. That He will use the trials we face to help strengthen our faith. Taking our self-sufficiency and Replacing it with God dependency. Believing in His presence and provision beyond the limits of our own strength and ability. Helping us see the hope of redemption beyond the limits of our suffering. Like we said last week, we know how this story ends. We know the final outcome. Verse 7 says, 
we will, it will, our faith will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear the certainty in what Peter is saying. And we see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4.17, where Paul says, our momentary light affliction will be, certainty will be, exchanged for an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You see, God often uses our trials to help loosen our grip on this world. Refining our faith. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, the only true and certain hope that we have. Look at how he continues in verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I think Peter wants us to see that when Jesus is the object of our faith, God can use our suffering to deepen our intimacy with him. I know this is true in my own life. And I think it's probably true for many of you as well. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but he shouts in our pains. He says, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The Apostle Paul says that, that suffering is required. It's necessary if we really want to know Christ. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says at the beginning there, I want to know Christ. And then he says, how? Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his what? In his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead. You see, we simply cannot be faithful to Christ in a sin-cursed world without suffering for the sake of the gospel. But God uses that suffering to deepen our experience of his love. Peter says, even though we haven't seen him with, you haven't seen him with your own eyes, even though you've never met him face to face, that you have experienced his presence in the midst of your pain. It makes me think of the series, if you've watched it, called Band of Brothers that followed a regiment of soldiers in uh, World War II as they experienced all the, the tragedies and loss within war. But that shared experience of suffering built a bond of affection that normal, everyday life could never do. And you see, our suffering for the sake of Christ does the very same thing. When we suffer for him, it gives us a better understanding of his suffering for us. Which leads us to a a deeper experience of his love in ways that normal everyday life can never do. And it gives us a greater assurance of his redemption. That's why Paul or Peter says, we rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Knowing that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Because suffering without salvation just doesn't make sense. It's it's untenable. It, It leaves evil unchecked. It lets injustice 
prevail. Suffering without salvation doesn't make sense. That's why the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 37, 28, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. You see, that's the hope we hold on to in our suffering. That, that the ju- injustice will not prevail. That evil will not go unchecked. We endure what is wrong because of the assurance that our God will make things right. Otherwise, suffering would be unbearable. But not if you're convinced that God is with you. Not if you believe that he is for you. That's when suffering has the power to deepen your affection as you rely on him to carry you through. Look at how he goes on in verse 10. He says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from, sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Now this is remarkable. We've been talking about how God uses our trials to help refine and strengthen our faith. How he can use our suffering to draw us deeper into an intimacy with him. And now Peter says God uses our pain to validate his truth. Because there's a pattern that's repeated all throughout Scripture. A promise that is predicted by the Old Testament prophets one after another. Which says that suffering must come first. And then there's glory. It was true of the promised Messiah. And it's true for us as well. Peter said that the prophets made careful searches and inquiries. Which means they they looked intently at the revealed word of God. And then they compared what they read with what they saw happening in the world around them. Because they were trying to discern who the Messiah would be and when he would come. And the key to their understanding was this repeated pattern. Of the expectation that he must suffer first and then glory will follow. That's why Isaiah writes, he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our sins. That the punishment that we deserve must fall on him. The suffering must come first in order for the glory to follow. Peter says it's the Spirit of Christ that spoke this truth into their hearts. Is that not an interesting phrase? I think it may be said that way one other time in Scripture. Which means before Jesus was born, he foretold who he would be. And the prophets knew that it would be a promise fulfilled in future generations. A generation of people to whom, in this case, Peter is now writing along with generations like our own who are reading it now. And what Peter says to them, he he would say to us, and that is we need to appreciate 
the privileged place we have in history. Because as Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, 24, For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. In fact, Peter, at the end of that passage says, even the angels long and look with anticipation. Because remember, angels are creatures created by God, but they do not inherit salvation. Instead, they they serve the purpose of God for those who do. And so they rejoice when they witness our redemption fulfilled in us. You see, the Old Testament prophets suffered for something they never saw came to fruition. But we suffer for that which we know has already been fulfilled. Do you see the privileged place we have? 1 Corinthians 15.3, we've been mentioning this. This is what we know to be true. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It was foretold, suffering, and then glory. He suffered by dying on the cross, suffering the loss of life. But on the third day, he rose again. The glory was to follow. We know and believe this to be true. It was his suffering that set us free from the power of sin and death. So, here's the reality. There is nothing in this world that we can lose that is of more value than what we gain through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ because he knows that is a treasure That can never be taken away. So yes, Peter's audience was suffering persecution because of their faith. They were outcasts in society. They were aliens in this world. But their pain pointed them to the promise of the glory that is to come. Their suffering would someday be rewarded with glory. We know that because of Romans 8.18. For I consider the suffering of this present time, Paul says, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I hope and pray that this really is an encouragement to you, as I believe it would have been for the audience that Peter was writing to. Because I know that many of you have suffered some very tragic loss in your lifetime. I also know that Some of you are some really difficult places right now. And if you're not, it's probably only a matter of time before you will be. Because suffering in this world is simply not something that any one of us can avoid. The challenge is can we see God's purpose in the midst of our pain? See, it's the belief that even in the midst of our trials... God is at work to refine and strengthen our faith. It's the belief that even in the midst of our suffering, that he is drawing us into a deeper intimacy with him. It's the belief that even in our pain, it's pointing us to a glory, the fulfillment of his redemption that is yet to come. 
And so as we close with those things in mind, I want us to consider how we might reframe some of the questions that we typically ask in the midst of our suffering and pain. And I want to give credit to some friends of ours that we prayed with this last Sunday during our worship night who really stirred my heart and mind on this um, because of some things that they said during that time. They they shared some of the the pain and suffering that they were experiencing. And one of the questions they asked, which I think many of us do, if not all of us at some point in the midst of our pain, is why is this happening to us? Anybody ever ask that question? Why is this happening to us? But they went on to say, we started to consider a different question. Why not? Why not? Was there something God said that made us believe that life would be easy? It, was there something that God said that would indicate that there's, a, uh, that there's a formula that we can follow to avoid experiencing pain in life? Or maybe we should be more concerned with the absence of suffering in our life than with its presence. Why not? After all, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, tells him, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be certainty, not if, not might be, will be persecuted. When he visited churches during his missionary journey, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, it says he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And let me just tell you this. I don't think his message would be any different for us if he were to visit our church today. So instead of asking why this is happening, maybe we should ask, Why not? Reframing the question might help us look for God in the midst of our pain instead of focusing on all our efforts of finding a way out. Tim Keller says this. He says, the fiery furnace does not automatically make us better. Instead, we must recognize, depend on, speak with, And believe in God while in the fire. God himself says in Isaiah 43 that he will be with us. Walking beside us in the fire. Knowing him personally while in our affliction. Is the key to becoming stronger rather than weaker in it. Another question I often hear and I've asked myself is. What have I done? What have I done to deserve what is happening in this situation? Again, we're back to that formula that suggests bad things don't happen to good people. I mean, wasn't that the accusation of Job's friends? That one of them said in chapter 4, verse 7, Whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Another friend added in eight, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 20, Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hand of, of evildoers. In other words, bad things don't happen to good people. If you just do the right things, then life will go well. But if that's true, how do we explain what happened to Jesus? 
the most innocent and righteous man to ever live, experiencing the most evil injustice the world has ever known. So maybe it's not a good question. Instead of asking, what have I done? Maybe we should ask, what is he doing? What is he doing? How is he at work in the midst of the trials that we face to to refine and strengthen our faith? How in the, the midst of our suffering is he drawing us into a deeper intimacy of recognizing and experiencing his presence? How in our pain is he pointing us to a time when that pain goes away? See, if you're not a Christian, then I agree. Suffering doesn't make sense. There's no good explanation, nor is there any hope for enduring it. It's a worthless reality of a meaningless life. But if you belong to God, you can know that your suffering is never wasted. God only allows evil to the degree that it accomplishes the very opposite of what it intends. So let me close with a question that I want to urge you to ask yourself in the midst of difficulties, okay? Please write this down. Here's the question. Lord, what do you want me to trust you for in this situation? Lord, what do you want me to trust you for in this situation? So when you are in a difficult place, suffering, pain, and you begin to feel emotions, anger, discouragement, Depression, defeat, whatever those emotions may be, train your heart and mind instead of trying to make sense of what is happening in your circumstances to turn to God and in faith ask Him, Lord, how do you want me to trust you in this situation? And just see if there might be ways that God might use what you're experiencing as awful and as evil or unjust as it may be to strengthen your faith, to deepen your intimacy, and to point you to the promise of the redemption that is yet to come. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for addressing realities in your scripture that relate directly to the realities we face in life, knowing that we will all go through suffering. We will experience trials that in a sin-cursed world, we cannot avoid suffering for the sake of the gospel. That we will, like Peter's audience, be outsiders. That we will be considered uh, unkind because of some of the things that we might believe to be true in your word. Because of the desire to walk faithfully with you. So Lord, help us to, to persevere knowing that you are always at work to refine and strengthen our faith, that you are always at work to draw us closer into intimacy with you, that you are always at work pointing us to a promise that will be fulfilled. We have that certainty. We know how this story ends. So encourage us, Lord, as we walk into difficult places to be able to look to you and ask you, Lord, how do you want me to trust you more in this situation? just wanted to encourage you um, and let you know that a sermon like this, I'm preaching to myself as much or more than I'm preaching to you. 
And we really need to hear these truths and remind each other of them. That's why it's written in this book. Because we're all going to find ourselves in these places. But I want to encourage you this morning, drive a stake in the ground. Anchor your soul to these places. So that when you get into a situation, which you will, where you're asking the questions of, why is this happening? What have I done? You can turn to the Lord and say, what are you doing and how can I trust you?